you know, we're halfway through this series. Uh, so far, we have seen the fact that God is faithful, that we know that God is sufficient. We've seen that God restores the brokenhearted. Last week, we saw that God transforms us. He takes what's broken and messed up, and he makes it new. And this week, we're going to see that we can have hope. We have the assurance of hope because God is victorious. And that's good news for us, that no matter what's going on in our life, we can have hope. In Zechariah chapter 9, they are looking for a coming king. The temple has been restored. The people's eyes are focused on God. And I can't help but think that they are waiting now for their coming king. You see, God's people had come to expect having a king. It wasn't always that way. God at one point was their king. And he had judges over them. But they didn't like that system. And so they got tired of that. And so they wanted a worldly king like the other leaders, like the other people had. They wanted a worldly king. And it says in uh, Samuel, Samuel was one of the last judges in Samuel, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 6. uh, They they asked for a a new king. So they want a king like the rest of the people had. And so they call Samuel and they say, all the elders of Israel, they gathered together in verse 4. They came to Samuel at Ramah and they said to him, behold, you are old. And your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the other nations. This displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And so Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the Lord. Obey the, obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Give them a king. You know, when I look through the Bible, there's two different desires that I see in the Bible that have just really messed it all up for all of us. It goes all the way back to the beginning of Genesis when Adam and Eve are in the garden and they have this desire for the, for the forbidden fruit. Can we not eat that fruit? Sure, you can eat that fruit. Their desire, that decision that they made, we are still paying for that today. You know, sin has entered into the world. We all suffer from it because of that initial desire in the Garden of Eden. And that's one of the worst decisions that somebody has ever made. Can I eat from the fruit of the tree? You know what I believe? I believe that this is the second worst decision in the Bible that anybody's made that is having a direct impact on us. You know, they want a king like everyone else. And so setting, having the Lord as their king with judges over them, guess what? They got a worldly king like everybody else. And we are still paying for that today. We see throughout scripture a series of kings that would rule over the people. Finally, they go into exile. This whole system of government that we have right now is in part set up because of the fact that they wanted a king back in 1 Samuel. You know, if I had a time machine, I'd want to go back and I would like Samuel. I'd be back there going, no, don't do that. You know, we are still paying for that today. And Zechariah, as he moves into chapter 9, begins to tell them about a coming king. The temple has been restored, and as he move into chapter 9, he prophesies. It's a prophetic book, and he gives a sweeping survey of the Lord that will be coming as a triumphant king. We know him today as Jesus, and we see him in the first and the second coming. You know, first we see him as a baby in the manger. We see his first coming as a baby in the manger. His second coming, he's going to come as a triumphant king to rule over and to judge the living and the dead. So we see him as a baby, and we see him as a righteous king and judge his second coming. And we are living in the church age in the middle of that. And that's important to know, because the Old Testament prophets, they did not have the fullness of this understanding. 
They did not understand that the Lord was going to be coming in two parts. And so as Zechariah is writing this morning, he's going to show us two periods of the king's coming. And so we see the first and the second period reflected in his writings. Zechariah is quoted throughout the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He's quoted throughout the Gospels in the first coming of Jesus. And then we also see Zechariah is going to be quoted throughout Revelation in the second coming of Jesus. Zechariah is speaking to both periods unbeknownst to him, but we have the benefit today as we look back to understand the fullness of these prophecies. That's why it's so important that we don't erase history. We've got to learn from history, and we have an opportunity to look back and celebrate these prophecies today based on what we know. You know, Carolyn and I, we love to go for bike rides. We love to ride on the Fox River. There's a trail that runs along the Fox River. We've been from Algonquin all the way down to Aurora. And you'd think it's a pretty straight shot from uh, Algonquin down to Aurora as you're following the fox. But you know what? It's not a straight shot. There's, there's peaks and valleys as we're, as we're navigating this journey. There's curves that we can't see around. And so I can remember the first couple of times that we, that we went on these trips, it was like, oh man, I hope we're getting close. I hope we're getting close. And then I come to the top of the mountain. It's like, oh, we got like two more miles to go. And so on this bike ride, it's a series of peaks and valleys. Now that I've been on this journey several times, I've got a feel for what this journey looks like. I know where I am on the journey. I know I'm not at the end. I know what to expect. And so that's the way it is with Zechariah. When he's writing this book, he gives us a glimpse of the peaks and valleys. He gives us a glimpse of the first and the second coming. And unbeknownst to him, it's not until we today can look back and fully understand the whole picture. We have seen the whole route and we know now what we can expect. You know, sometimes God gives Zechariah a glimpse in the valley. And sometimes he gives us a, a glimpse of at a peak. And we have the benefit today of looking back and seeing the fullness of this whole picture. First, we know that we see Jesus as a baby in the manger. He is a suffering servant. We know that he came to die. That's his first coming. But we also know that he's coming back. He's coming back a second time, except this time it's going to be as the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, and every knee is going to bow, and he's going to judge the living and the dead. The prophets of the Old Testament and even the New Testament disciples didn't see that whole picture, and that's why they were confused about Jesus's first coming and his need to die in order to come back. Peter would say, you're not going to die. Jesus would say, no, you have no idea what I've come here to do. You know, when Jesus first appeared, and then there's John the Baptist, the disciples who wanted to know of John. Are you the one? Are you the one? There was confusion among those early disciples about the first coming of Jesus. They did not fully understand there was two comings. You know, they were confused about what to expect in a king. They wanted a powerful, worldly king. They did not want a lowly servant. That didn't make sense to them. You know, as you read through these first verses in Zechariah chapter 9, verses 1 through 8 are a pronouncement about a powerful king and what he will do to the enemies of the Israelites. Verse 1 of uh, chapter 9 says, The oracle of the word of the Lord came to him, and it came against the land of Hadrach. You know, these lands in this list, as you read through verses 1 through 8, these are a list of the cities that the Lord is going to come up against. He's going to come up against Hadrach, against Damascus, against Hamath, against Tyre, against Sidon, 
Ashkelon, Gaza, Ekron, Philistia. The Lord is going to come up against all of these lands because they are the enemies of Israel. And that's in fact what happens. At this point is a prophecy. But soon we would find out that these lands would actually fall at the hand of Alexander the Great. You see, Alexander the Great was one of the greatest was one of the greatest Roman warriors of all time. And he would come in and he would take all of these lands. You know, Daniel would prophesy of these conquests. In Ezekiel chapter 26, there's a prophecy specifically against Tyre. We didn't get a chance to look at that when we were going through our series in uh, Ezekiel. We got cut a little bit short when we had to move all of our services offline. But Ezekiel 26, there's a specific prophecy against Tyre. You know, Ezekiel says that Tyre will be flattened. He will not spare Tyre. Tyre is going to be flattened and there will be no spare. You know, it's interesting that all of these things came to pass exactly as it was prophesied. You know, on a side note here, I went to seminary. And when I went to seminary, it wasn't to become a pastor. See, I became a Christ follower at the age of 33. And I started reading the Bible. And I went into the store to find to buy a Bible. And I was trying to figure out which translation should I get. And so I asked the guy, well, which, which translation you know, should I get? He said, well, what do you want? And I said, well, I don't know. Which one's closest to the original Latin? You know, because I grew up thinking, you know, it was a Latin mass, Latin this, Latin Vulgate. I grew up thinking it was written in Latin. He goes, well, it wasn't written in Latin. It was written in Greek and Hebrew. I was like, what? You know, I did not realize how much I didn't know until I started seminary. Until I started studying Greek and Hebrew, did I realize how much I did not know about my own language, English. A verb, a participle, a noun, a subject. You know, those were all things that I had back in the 10th and 11th grade. I was an adult now. Those things were not of importance to me. And it wasn't until I got into these languages that I realized there was a lot to know about the language. These are important words. And so I would encourage you, whenever you're doing a study in your Bible, you know, we use a, a, an online app. It's the Blue Letter Bible. We recommend that to all of our small group leaders, to all of our leaders. There's a link to it on our website. When you're studying the Bible, it's important that you look at the words, stop and take some time. Go to a website, get a concordance, look at a summary. ESV has got a great study Bible. Stop and ponder and look at the words because they are so important. And then I didn't realize how much I didn't know about history until I started studying the Old Testament. It is amazing how much history is reflected in the Bible. This is not just, this is not just some made-up words. Archaeology, history, everything substantiates the words that we have here. And I did not realize how much I did not know about history until I started studying the Old Testament. Alexander the Great through his conquest. And you can go look at, I spent some time looking at Alexander the Great this week. He's, it's fascinating to just to look at the study of his life and to look things up. Alexander the Great was one of the greatest rulers, military leaders there was. You know, it was interesting. Alexander actually had a horse. And Alexander's horse was named Bucephalus. And Alexander's horse had that name. It was a combination of two Greek words, bolus meaning ox and kephalus meaning head. And so Alexander, one of the greatest military leaders of all time, was riding one of the most famous horses in history. I don't know if you've ever heard of that name, Eusebius. That was one of the most famous horses in history. It was given to Alexander, and it was believed by his dad. It was huge. And so when Alexander is coming to take these lands, he's coming with this huge horse as a great military leader with this vast army, and he's wiping these cities out. 
You know, it's fascinating when you look at Alexander's history. One of the greatest military leaders in history. People still study and learn from him today. And he and his horse and his army, they show up at the front door of the Jews at Jerusalem. In verse 8, it says this. When he got there, it says, The Lord had encamped at his house as a guard so that none shall be able to march to and fro. No oppressor shall reign against them, for now I see them with my own eyes. When Alexander got to Jerusalem with his great horse, this great leader, this great army, he was stopped. As you read down through the history, and this is kind of where history can sometimes get a little stray. It's hard to you know, figure out which is history and, you know, which is kind of embellishment. But, you know, it's thought to believe that, you know, when the, when they got there, the Jews went out to meet him. And, you know, some speculate that they, that they showed him, hey, you're here. You, you conquered all these cities. This was all foretold in Daniel and Ezekiel. In fact, they point specifically to Tyre. It, it says that when, when he saw that, when he heard that, he was so impressed with the fact that it was foretold that it was in the Bible that he actually stopped and he didn't take over Jerusalem. And it says that he actually, in some cases, that they think that he might have even offered up sacrifices for his sins. You know, we don't know exactly what happened with Alexander when he got to Jerusalem, but we do know this, this great leader on this great horse with this great army got to Jerusalem and was stopped. Now, I can imagine those Jews looking at Alexander. Now, that is a king, powerful, worldly well-respected. His horse is even powerful. And so the Jews are looking at them, and I can't help but think of that that's what they think of when they think of what a king would be. Is it no wonder that they're confused when Jesus would show up and claim to be king? He is not what they were expecting. You know, these Jews are looking at Alexander the Great, but listen to what Zechariah tells them that they should be looking for in a king. And we see that beginning in verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. This is not the king, but a king is going to come to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. And I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bull shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations, and his rule shall be from sea to sea, from the river to the very ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of this covenant that I have with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare to you, I'm going to restore to you double. For just as I have been Judah as my bow, and I have made Ephraim as its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. You know, is there any wonder that the Jews were confused when Jesus came as king? Look at Alexander. Alexander's uh, believed to have died around 32, 33 years old. It was one of the greatest victory, one of the greatest conquerors that ever lived. And then you got Jesus, who's also, you know, 33 years old. When you can pass, when you can think about all the attributes of what you find in Alexander, what do you find in Jesus? Look at verses 9 and 10 together. Rejoice, behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous, 
having salvation is he. Humble, mounted on a donkey on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I'm going to cut off the chariot from Ephraim, the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. He shall rule from sea to sea, from river to the very ends of the earth. Zechariah tells the people what kind of a king to expect. They're looking at Alexander the Great, and they're listening to Zechariah tell them what they're looking for. Zechariah would predict a king that has five qualities. We know that he would be coming in righteousness. We know that he would be a savior. We know that he would be humble, that he would be on a donkey, and that he would be a king of peace. All of these attributes of Jesus are ones that we find as we look at the New Testament scriptures. And as we look at the New Testament, it's easy for us to look at who Jesus is now because of what we know. But it was something that they would have struggled with in the New Testament. Those early believers, the Old Testament prophets, those, those, those Jews of the day were expecting a worldly king and they get the king that Zechariah would prophesy and tell them that they're going to get. In Matthew chapter 1, it tells about the, the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. In chapter 1, it says the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being just a man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear, take Mary as your wife, for that which is in you is conceived from the Holy Spirit. Verse 21 says this, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save people from their sins. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. The virgin shall conceive a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God is with us. The birth of Jesus Christ. Jesus is called what? He's called a savior. As you read through Matthew, as you get to verse 21, we see the triumphal entry of Jesus as he's coming into Jerusalem. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 21, it says, when they, when they drew near to Jerusalem, Jesus and the disciples are with him. They came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives. Jesus said to two of his disciples, go into the village in front of you immediately and you'll find a donkey, a colt with her. Untie them, bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell them the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. And then in verse four and five, it says this, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. So Jesus would come as a king. And how would he come? He would come humble. And what would he come on? He would be coming, riding on a donkey. And so the great thing about this, and this is one of the things I love about this passage, Jesus is claiming Zechariah 9.9 for himself. Jesus understood that he was there at the Father's will. Jesus underknew, understood what God's plan was for him. Jesus knew that he was going to be suffering a criminal's death. And as you read through the New Testament, Jesus is constantly 
referring to himself based on the prophecies that you find in the New Testament. Jesus came in fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies. It's uh, nothing short of a miracle. When you look at the prophecies of the Old Testament and see how Jesus fulfilled them, I can't imagine today being a Jew and not reading through the New Testament and coming to understand that Jesus is the Messiah, the promised one. There are still some that are confused today, just like they were then. The Jews today are still waiting to build the temple back. They still want a worldly king. They are stuck where those early disciples were stuck and the Old Testament prophets were stuck. But praise God that we know today the truth about who Jesus Christ is. He is a king. He came humble. He came on a donkey. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 20, uh, 27, uh, beginning in verse 27, Paul would write this about Jesus. God chose what was foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring everything under himself so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And that says this in verse 30. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. He became to us righteousness. He becomes to us sanctification and redemption. So that it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. God humbles us. God does not want us stepping out in our own pride. God does not look to a worldly king. And we need to be humbled. You know, one of the most difficult things about becoming a Christ follower is about understanding that you are not the Lord of your life. You are not in control of your own life. And until you can come to understand your need for a Savior, that your sin separates you from God, you are living life out in a prideful, boastful manner. Until we come to the point that we recognize our need for a Savior, until we humble ourselves, we cannot experience this peace that comes from God. We cannot be justified when we stand before God, when he comes again, we cannot experience sanctification. We will not experience redemption and we will not experience peace. And I'm confused. You know, when I look around today and I see people that are in disarray, everything that you see going on around you is a result of the fact that people are living for themselves. Everything that's happening right now is a result of the fact that we live in a fallen and broken world and until we understand who our Lord is, and until we understand who we serve, we're going to be blown around here and there by various winds of teaching, and we're not going to experience the fullness of the peace that is ours in Christ Jesus. John 10.10 10 says, I came so that you can have peace, so that you can have joy, and you can have these things to the full. And it begins by understanding our need for relationship with Christ. We are righteous when we stand before God, because he is righteousness. Jesus is righteousness, and we are able to stand in that. Jesus is our, is our righteousness because of the work that accomplished for us on the cross, because we are justified, and we get to experience that through faith. We are saved by God's grace through faith, so that no one can boast. There's nothing I can do to earn God's favor. I have to understand, I have to submit myself to him and to his plan. 
And we are saved by God's grace through faith. And we experience his righteousness because he is righteous. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14, Paul is writing about our oneness in Christ. In the beginning in verse 13, it says, But now you are in Christ Jesus. Once you were far from him, once you were not a believer, and you weren't one with Christ, but now you are. You were far off, but you have been brought near by the blood of Christ. There is death on the cross. We are brought near. We are able to enter into a relationship with God because of the blood of Christ. God loves the world. He loves the world. He gave his only son. He loves us all. But only those that have been drawn near that understand his death and his resurrection and what that means to them are they drawn near and brought into relationship with him. In verse 14, it says this, For he himself is our peace. Christ is our peace, who has made us both one. He's broken down us in the flesh. He's broken down that dividing wall of hostility, and he has made us one with him. And that's where we find peace. Jesus says, in this world, you're going to be filled with trials and tribulations. It's going to get bad. You know, we look outside and it's going to, we look at how bad it is. And, you know, the conversations about, oh, this could be the end. This could be the end. This is not the end. We still have hope. It's going to get worse. We're going to experience trials and tribulation. But our peace is in the fact that we belong to Christ. Jesus is our peace. So Jesus comes as a king that does these five things. Jesus comes as a king that is righteous. He comes as a king that is a savior. He comes in humility. He comes on a donkey. And he comes as the prince of peace. When Jesus first appears, he appears as a servant king to save us. In fulfillment of the prophecy of Zechariah that we just read. He came as a babe in the manger to save us. When Jesus appears the next time, he's not coming as a babe in the manger. When Jesus comes the second time, he's going to come as the king of kings. He's going to judge the living and the dead. We're going to be one with God. We're going to be in a relationship with him. We're going to have a king and we're going to have a judge, just like it was before we entered into this fallen world. Jesus is coming back as a king and as a judge, a judge of the living and the dead. Beginning in uh, verse 13, uh, God said in, uh, back in Zechariah chapter 9, in verse 13, he said, I have bent Judah as my bow. I have made Ephraim an arrow. I'm going to stir you up, O sons of Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. You know, verse 13 gives us a, a glimpse of the deliverance that's going to come through, through Judah and through Ephraim. Jews and Gentiles are going to rise up together. We're going to be united as one in Christ. And when Jesus returns the second time, Zechariah says this beginning in verse 14, the Lord's going to appear over them and his arrow is going to go forth like lightning. The Lord will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of hosts will protect them and they shall devour and they shall tread down, the, sling the stones. They shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine and be full like the bowl, drenched like the corners of the altar. On that day, the Lord will save them as the flock of his people, like jewels of the crown, they shall shine on his land. 
For how great is his goodness, how great is his beauty. Grain shall make young men flourish, and new wine the young women. Zechariah is talking about Jesus' second coming. Verses 14 and 15, they, they give us a glimpse of the Lord appearing in all of his fullness. And he's going to bring this final deliverance. And all of God's people are going to celebrate because they are going to be in his presence. Verse 16 says it's going to happen on that day. At the end of time, when the Lord returns, he's going to regather them like a shepherd gathers his flock. We're going to be brought together as believers because of who we are in Christ. The Bible says that the sheep know the voice of the shepherd Jesus is referred to as our shepherd and we are his sheep and we are going to be gathered together and we're going to celebrate. That's what we have to look forward to. They're sure gonna, they're gonna, they're gonna drink in wars that they were drunk with wine. It's the same glimpse that you get when the Holy Spirit descends on that early church and people think that they were drunk with wine when in fact they were filled with the Holy Spirit. That's gonna be the way it is when Jesus Christ returns the second time and gathers us up together. We have so much to look forward to. The fullness of that is going to happen at his second coming. The fullness of God will dwell among them again and he will bless them and God's people will sparkle like jewels in a crown. That's what we're looking forward to. Zechariah in chapter nine gets quoted more than probably any other verse when it comes to the celebration of the birth of Jesus. We know that he is the king of kings. We know that he came in fulfillment of scripture. We are not trusting in worldly kings. We have placed our faith in a savior that loves us, that demonstrates for us what it means to live in humility, what it means to humble ourselves. He came as an example to serve and to seek and to save that which was lost. He has a purpose in coming. He came for a reason at that first coming that Zechariah prophesied about. In John chapter 3, in verse 16, it says that we know that Jesus is God. He says, uh, let me get to it real quick. It says in verse 16 that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God loves everyone. Love does win. God loves everyone. He demonstrates that love for us in the fact that he sent his son to us that while we were still sinners, he would die for us. God loves us so much that he sent his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God did not send his son in the world to condemn it, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people have loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Everyone who does wicked hates the light, does not come into the light, lest his work shall be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes into the light that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Jesus came the first time to save us, 
to help us enter into a relationship with him. And that we are in the church age. We are the body of Christ. And we know that Jesus is the head of the church. And we are members of it, joined and held together as each part does its own work. We are the body of Christ, the church. We are the assembly of the believers that are living in the church age as we celebrate his first coming and we eagerly anticipate his second coming. We are waiting for Jesus to return a second time. We celebrate that. We look forward to that. That's what we do. That's what we did at communion this morning. We looked at the fact that we are secure in who we are in Christ. We celebrate that. But then we also examine ourselves as we think about how do we live our life out in light of that calling. Communion is an opportunity for us to celebrate that as the body of Christ as we wait and anticipate his second coming. In Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 22, it says this. Paul is standing in the midst of the Agropolis. And he said, men of Athens... I perceive that in every way you are very religious. You know, I had an opportunity to actually stand there. I took pictures of it. It was so cool. I'm looking around thinking, man, I'm I'm picturing all the people standing around there. I'm picturing the religious people of the day. They were religious. They worshiped all kinds of gods. You know, when you go into India, you go into India and you tell people about Jesus Christ, they'll accept Jesus as God because they'll put him up on the countertop with other gods. They've got 3,000 gods. And you have to explain to people like, no, those aren't, those aren't really gods. Jesus is the God. You know, we have idols. We have different things in our, in our life that interfere with our putting God first in our lives. Jesus is our Lord. He is God. He is our Lord. And we submit to and are underneath him as Lord. And so Paul looks around and he says, I see that you're very religious, but there's something missing. I perceive that everywhere you're very religious. I pass along. I saw these objects of your worship. I even found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Therefore, what you worship as unknown, I proclaim to you this. The God who made the world, the God who made everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. We don't need to make another temple. This church building is not a temple. We are the body of Christ. We get to come here It protects us from the elements. We get to worship. We get to be salt and light in this community. It's a gathering place for us, but we are the church and individually we're members of one another and we make it up. This is a building and we don't need this building. And whether we're meeting in this building or under a tree or someplace else in a group, wherever you're meeting, you are the church. I praise God that he provided us a building because when it's snowing outside, I want to be where it's nice and warm. And I am really glad right now the air conditioning is blowing on me. This is a blessing. But this is not our motivation. This is not what our focus is. We have to be good stewards of this building because God has entrusted it to our care. The God who made the world and everything in it does not live in temples made by man. He lives in us. The Holy Spirit is in us. He is not served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He made from one man, every nation of man to live on the face of the earth, having uh, determined the allotted periods and and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and we move and we have our being. As in some of you, your poets have already said, we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, We should not think 
that divine beings like God are silver or silver or stone, an image formed by the art of the imagination of man is something that we should put our focus in. And then he says this in verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked are gone. Now he commands all the people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man who he has appointed. All of this he has given assurance to all by raising him up from the dead. The time of ignorance is over. We have been called to repent, to place our faith in Christ. And too many people still have Jesus in the manger. Jesus is no longer in the manger. He died. He rose from the grave and he is seated at the right hand of the Father. And the good news that we have to share with others is this, that we can be right in our relationship with God. We can experience joy and peace in the fullness of a relationship with God when we place our faith in him. Where is your faith this morning? Are we trusting in the government to take care of us? Are we trusting in other people to meet our needs and to satisfy our needs? Think about some of the places that we place our faith today. There's a day coming. It is fixed. Jesus does not know when he's going to return. No one knows when Christ is going to return. Only the Father. It's our responsibility to do his will until that day that he does return. So that when he does return, we can hear those great words, well done, good and faithful servant. When Jesus returns, it's going to be in righteousness and it's going to be to judge the living and the dead. There are no more second chances. We have an opportunity now to place our faith in Christ. And when he comes back, it's going to be too late. In Acts 3.18, it's a call to repent, to turn back, that our sins might be forgiven and blotted out. That times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. We know that he's going to come a second time. The beginning of Acts chapter 3, verse 19. It says that we're to repent and turn back. You know, we are to repent and turn back knowing that our sins will be blotted out. We are to place our faith in him. And we are knowing that he's going to send Christ back again to judge us. There's, it's an appointment. In Romans Chapter 10, verse 9 and 10, it says this. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the grave, you will be saved. For with one heart he believes and is justified. With the mouth he confesses and is saved. And so you, we need a relationship with Christ now so that we're prepared whenever he comes back for that final judgment. And so if you have not placed your faith in Christ, today is the day for you to be able to do that. Jesus Christ is God. He came in fulfillment of scripture. Everything that we need to know is in here. We need a relationship with Christ. And if you don't have a relationship with Christ this morning, it's as simple as, as saying, it. hey, I believe this. I believe that Jesus did come, that he is God, that he did die on the cross for my sins. And I want the assurance of that salvation so that when Christ comes back, I can have the assurance of spending my life in his presence. That is great news. That's where we find our victory. That's where we find peace today. And if you haven't done that, I would love the opportunity to talk with you about how to have a relationship with Christ. If you're watching on springbrook.live, there's a little button that says, hey, I want to commit my life to Christ. You can click that button. 
And if you click that button, please follow the link to let us know about your desire to make that decision because we want to celebrate that with you. We've got a gift for you. We'll give you a new Bible. We'll help you get connected. We're here to help you to grow in your faith in Christ. So we're still working on scheduling our next baptism service. Right now I have two people. And so as soon as you're ready to get baptized, I would love the opportunity for you to do that. It's a great opportunity for you to publicly confess your faith and to celebrate and encourage that with other people. And so if you have questions about baptism or how to have a relationship with Christ, please let us know. And if you've already made that faith commitment and you're living out the fullness of your life in Christ, can I ask you this? Does your life today reflect your relationship with Christ? How are you different from the people around you? You know, when I look in the church, we've got a problem. You know, because there, in some cases, there's not a whole lot of difference between what we find in the life of believers and what we find in the world. And so I want to challenge you. I want to encourage you this morning to let your life be a reflection of the hope that you do have. You know, go through your life in humility. When you have opportunities to speak to someone around you about what's going on in this world, use it as an opportunity to share with them the peace that you've experienced because of who you are in Christ. You know, if you're not connected to a a small group or to a Bible study, if you're not growing in your faith, you know, let us help you get connected so you can experience growth. If you don't know your spiritual gift and you're not serving to build up and strengthen this body of Christ, we'd love to talk with you about that. Most importantly, Acts 1.8 says that you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be a witness. Sometimes you get to use your words. Sometimes it's in your actions and your behaviors. But let your relationship with Christ set you apart from what you see in the lives of people around you. As we've gone through Zechariah, we're going to be moving into the book of Haggai next week. Pastor Matt's going to be looking at the first chapter of Haggai, and we're going to continue to look at lessons that we can learn as we look at the Israelites rebuilding this temple. We're not in exile. We're being inconvenienced right now. We've had all of our conveniences stripped away from us. A lot of what we're experiencing are first world problems. We're not in ex- exile, and we have hope, and we should live out like we have hope. And so this series on new beginnings is about not starting new, but starting new when we think about our church and what we're supposed to be doing as we move through this season, as we prepare to come back together and start to worship together. We're going to be looking at a series in Acts. Our small groups are going to be aligned with this series. And as we move towards the fall, August is, August, I started to say August is coming, but guess what? It's here. (laughs) The fall is almost over. We're moving towards the fall. We're going to be starting up a new series in five weeks, six weeks on the book of Acts. And we're going to encourage everyone to get involved in a a small group so we can look together at what it means to be a part of the body of Christ, the church. I pray that you're encouraged by this series that we're going through right now, that the principles that we're learning each day are, are applicable to your life and that you're able to experience the joy, the peace, the hope that is ours in Christ. And if you're not experiencing that today, we're glad that you were with us this morning. And I pray that this message would be an encouragement to you. Would you pray with me? Father, I just want to thank you for this day you've given us today. I thank you for the words of Zechariah. God, that we know today we're fulfilled in in the reality of the birth, the death, and the resurrection in Christ. And we eagerly anticipate uh, his second coming. God, we just want to echo the words of Paul. For me, it would be better to be with Christ, but we know that you have a plan and a purpose for us here today. 
And so we long for that day that we'll stand before you on your throne. But we know that you have a plan and a purpose for us today. And I pray that for any of my friends that don't have a relationship with Christ this morning, that they would come to understand the fullness of the hope that is ours in Christ. And they would cross that line of faith. God, we know that no one comes to the Son unless the Father draws him. So, Father, draw people into a relationship with yourself. And for those of us that do have a relationship with Christ, I pray that we would live in light of the victory that is ours. God, thank you for the opportunity we have to celebrate that reality. And I pray that we can continue to be an encouragement to one another and that our lives would glorify you. We look forward to all that you have for us through this season as we move into the fall until that day that Christ returns. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to thank you for being with us this morning. If you have any questions about anything that we discussed this morning, you can go to our website, post some comments on uh, springbrook.live. Uh, thanks for being with us today. I hope you have a great day. Go in the peace, the love, and the joy that is yours in Christ Jesus. Have a great day.